Good evening, everybody. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, a couple things. I'm actually going to move this here so it's easier to get to. Um, <coughs> I'm going to kind of blow through my notes kind of quickly because I have a lot of notes. And um, I'm going to do that in the hopes of having conversation because it's not really that great to just have me talk at you. I'd rather talk with you um, and just kind of chew on some of the reality of the times that we're living in. And as Christians especially, um, we have a burden. And I think one of the bigger problems that we're facing is the fact that that burden has been lost. It's been subsumed by um, other realities that really have nothing to do with Christianity, but they have everything to do with cultural and historical narratives. Um, and I'll unpack that as we go a little bit further. But, you know, uh, with, the ad with the current administration and the current political environment that we live in, regardless of what side of the aisle you fall on, I think everyone can agree that um, race in particular has become um, a topic of uh, pretty harsh tone uh, like we haven't seen it in a long time. And the reason why I say it like that is because um, as we move further and further in the current administration, people are beginning to um, throw off certain understandings that we've had for a long time. Certain narratives that we actually made a lot of progress as a country to try to get to, those things are being very quickly being sunk again. Um, it's gotten to the point where some people even doubt historical realities like Jim Crow, like slavery, and these things. Um, and so I say all that because uh, the work of Dr. James Cone is more relevant now than, in my opinion, than it was when he was first initially writing. He's still with us, he's still writing, but a lot of his seminal work came out of the late 60s and uh, early 70s. And I think it's more relevant today because of the environment that we're living in. So I'm gonna be quoting almost exclusively um, from Dr. James Cone. Um, and there's going to be some things that I'm going to say that are going to be uncomfortable for some people, and, uh, and that's good. You need to be uncomfortable, um, because if you're not uncomfortable, number one, I'm not telling the truth uh, if I'm not making you uncomfortable. Number two, if you're not uncomfortable, then it means that something's going on with your heart, too. Okay? And this is, this is the big rub, is that, um, you know, Christianity has... Um, Marx said that, you know, religion has become the opiate for the masses. And I think that in the case of Christianity, there, there's some real truth to that. Because Christianity, especially in America, has become a force to uh, lull people to sleep. It's become a force by which people kind of feel okay um, living a certain kind of comfortable life, which means turning a blind eye to, to those who um, Christ has commanded you to not turn a blind eye to. So we're going to look at that, okay? Um, so before we jump into everything, I'm going to put two very key points that everything kind of rises and falls on, okay? I have to kind of put my biases on the table. Um, I am a deacon in the Orthodox Church, and so because of that, um, my perspective on Christianity is going to be a little bit different than everyone here. Um, the Orthodox Church is... Uh, the ancient church, it's, it's very traditional in a lot of ways, but you need to understand what I mean by traditional 
Um, I mean traditional in regards of holding certain truths about who Christ is fundamental. Those things don't shift with culture. Those, we believe those things don't shift with the times. We, we believe those things don't shift with whatever's happening economically or socially, okay? That's very important to understand because, as Nick was saying, we're getting into the Advent season, and the incarnation is foundational, okay? If you don't understand that Christianity is fundamentally incarnational, you're not understanding Christianity. What, that, what I'm saying is, is that as a Christian, your belief is that God, the creator of all things, became flesh and blood, became man, okay? So you have two responses to that. Either A, you can go, that's a bunch of hooey, and that's mythology, or you can say, wow, uh, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. What's my response to that? Meaning, how do I live into that? How do I, how do I respond to God coming down and taking flesh and bone, okay? The second thing, and this is real important, is, you know, there's a tendency to divorce race from economics and politics, okay? Especially now in this administration. So someone will say, um, what are you talking about, you know, black people being oppressed or whatever? You have, you know, basketball players that have lots of money. You know, uh, Midtown isn't segregated, quote unquote, all these things that are happening again. There's lots of narratives that are happening again. And the fact of the matter is, is this phenomena to divorce race and economics and politics from each other, it's something that's been very um, fundamental in American Christianity. Race has been the like big taboo word, even more than sex, even more than sexual orientation. Like, you can't really talk about race and Christianity in America, okay? Uh, Dr. King said that, you know, you know, what was it, 10 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, and it still is. There's a reason for that, okay? And I'm, I'm going to submit to you that until that's dealt with, nothing is going to move forward. Nothing is, is going to move forward, okay? So... Um, there was a real nice blessing that was read earlier, and I'm actually, I was inspired by it, and I, I snuck up <laughs> to the front, and I, I kind of nabbed it, and, and I want to I wanna borrow from it, because I think it's going to lead us into something. Because here's the other thing, you know, um, I got six kids, and the one thing I know is, if I want the medicine to go down, I got to put a little bit of sugar with it, right? So here's a little bit of hope, because um, we're going to talk about some hard things. But in this blessing that was said, there was this point where it said, we are bloodied with our wars. We are wearied with our wounds. We carry our dead within us, and we reckon with their ghosts. Thank you so much. Um, we hold the seeds of healing. We dream of a new creation. We know the things that make for peace, and we struggle to give them wings. Okay. And yet to your table we come, hungering for your bread we come, thirsting for your wine we come, singing your song in every language, speaking your name in every tongue, in conflict and in communion, in discord and in desire we come, O God of wisdom we come. So I want that to kind of be the plate that everything is served on tonight. Because um, colorblindness doesn't work, it's not real, it's offensive actually. Um, and, you know, I'm going to throw something out that I'm going to come back to just to kind of stir it up a little bit. 
Um, Jesus is black, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. Um, Jesus is black. And because he was a Jew, it is precisely why he's black now. Because Jesus was a Jew in first century Palestine, he is black today. Dr. James Cohn, he says, the least in America are literally and symbolically present in black people. To say that Christ is black means that black people are God's poor people whom Christ has come to liberate and thus no gospel of Jesus Christ is possible in America without coming to terms with the history and culture of that people who struggle to bear witness to his name in extreme circumstances. My point is that God came and continues to come to those who are poor and helpless for the purpose of setting them free. And since the people of color are his elective poor in America, any interpretation of God that ignores black oppression cannot be Christian theology. Any minister, any pastor, any priest, anyone who says they're Christian and is teaching the scriptures and trying to lead people to life in Christ, if they don't touch on this and they don't address it at some point in time, they're not really bringing forth the incarnational reality of Christ. It's like over 300 times in the scriptures that the oppressed and the poor are mentioned, okay? But before we really get into that, I'm gonna kind of throw something at you guys. Some of you might jive with it. It might confuse some of you, that's okay. Um, but I think this is important to understand. In order to really understand the Old Testament, you have to start with Jesus, actually. You've been trained to start with the Old Testament first, Genesis, God creates, blah, 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 and you kind of move forward in a linear fashion. You come to Jesus and it's like, okay, we're here. I'm going to tell you, actually, that's wrong. That's not the way you're actually supposed to understand it. The way it starts is, is with Jesus, with the Christ, okay? Let me, let me just break this down for you. Do you remember in the gospel, and the, the apostles are walking down the road to Emmaus, and there's a guy who appears with them. And he starts walking with them, and he starts sharing with them about the scriptures. And they talk about, like, oh, man, he shared with us the scriptures, and our hearts opened up, and they burned within us. And he goes, and they end up breaking the bread, and then, boom, through the opening of the scriptures and the breaking of the bread, their eyes are opened, and Christ is manifested to them, like, oh, my gosh, it's the Lord. And then he disappears. You guys remember that? Okay. You only understand all the jazz in the Old Testament unless you're looking through the eyes of Christ. That's the only way. Listen, <laughs> Paul was killing and murdering Jews, and he knew the scripture better than anybody in this room. Paul was, you know, a Jew of the Jews, right? Tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He knew the scriptures back and forth, and yet he didn't know who Christ was. 
It's not about knowing the Bible. <laughs> it's about knowing the person of Christ. And that person of Christ, who is God incarnate, has come to liberate people. So what I'm trying to get at is when you understand Jesus' mission, then the, old, then the New Testament begins to open up. It, it becomes a lot more than just a kind of self-help manual to make you feel better about yourself. And then all the stuff like the Levitical laws in Deuteronomy start making a lot more sense, right? Those Levitical laws isn't just about, you know, oh, dress weird and do all this weird stuff with animals just because. There's a reason for those laws, but those reasons had to do with concrete reality, political reality, economic reality, okay? The tendency in Christianity today is to spiritualize everything away. And that's why Christianity is impotent. That's why it doesn't work. That's why it's false now. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is Christ in the synagogue. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Dr. Cohn says, Jesus is the reconciler because he is first the liberator. He is born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger because there is no place in the end, in the end, where he was baptized. The sinners, the poor, the oppressed, because the oppressed were the ones who God sent. Jesus lived and worked among them, and on the cross he died for them into history to affirm the condition of the oppressed as his own existence, thereby making clear that poverty and sickness contradict the divine intentions for humanity. The cross and the resurrection are God's defeat of slavery. What kind of God turns a blind eye to the suffering of his creation? I would reject that God. Now that we've kind of established that Jesus, right, has come as the liberator. And I would say to you, if you have that lens, you start reading the, the New Testament, it becomes very, very clear. Getting now to the Old Testament and understanding what was going on with Israel, there's a covenant reality. And this is really interesting. This is heavy. In Deuteronomy 26, let me read this to you. It says, then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. 
He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Dr. Cohn speaking on this, he says, Israel's covenant relationship with God is made possible because of God's liberating activity. Israel is Yahweh's people and Yahweh is their God because and only because Yahweh has delivered them from the bondage of political slavery and brought them from the wilderness to the land of Canaan. To be liberated is to be delivered from the state of unfreedom to freedom. It is to have the chain struck off the body and the mind so that the creature of God can be who he or she is. Liberation tells us that humans cannot be human and God refuses to be God unless the creature of God is delivered from that which is enslaving and dehumanizing. Let me read that again. Liberation tells us that humans cannot be human and God refuses to be God unless the creature of God is delivered from that which is enslaving and dehumanizing. There's a thing called the Nicene Creed. And up until about uh, 60 years ago, if you were a Christian, this was the thing that you affirmed was the Nicene Creed. And in that creed, it says, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, bodily resurrection. Why am I saying that? Why is this important? Well, because what's happened in modern times is uh, there has been what we would say like a Gnostic view of divorcing um, the body from the human person. So in other words, you can actually say, well, I'm a Christian um, and I believe in Jesus. And even though I have these people that I own and I brutalize them and I rape their women and I beat their men uh, and I make them work for me and I don't pay them, I'm still a Christian. How is that possible? Well, because you see, every Sunday I hire someone to come and to read the Bible to them, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to liberate their little souls. So even though their bodies are subjugated to me and I'm raping their women, it's okay. Because now they have the gospel, and they're gonna, their souls are going to live forever, and it's going to be okay. That seems kind of absurd to you, but brothers and sisters, you know, that was America without exception without exception. One of the things that's very difficult is that, um, you know, there is a claim that, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion. And coming from an American modern context, I mean, that's, that's kind of fair to say. Because Christianity was weaponized and used to brainwash and subjugate not just, you know, slaves, African slaves, I mean, all people indigenous folks. It was used to say, hey, God's given us the right, and as long as we give them the Bible, they're going to be okay. That's not true. Um, and it's especially not true because Christianity teaches that, you know, you, C.S. Lewis, he puts it great, you know, you don't have a body and a soul. You are a body and a soul. You understand that? We have this idea of like, oh, my body's like my tent, and then like, there's like the soul thing. It's like, no, no, that's why you're waiting for the resurrection, because unless that happens, it, it, you're not complete, you're not whole, okay? So 
part of my bias as an Orthodox Christian is that I look to the history of Christianity and I go like, well, thanks be to God that um, not all Christianity fell into that, you know? And that's very important because the Christian church in the East, um, first of all, never participated in the slave trade. Um, so none of the Orthodox churches participate in the slave trade. And the other thing is, we haven't deviated from the understanding that the body is important. I can't come to you and try to give you Jesus and ignore your needs. And that's in the scripture, right? You don't say, be warmed and be filled and go on your way. You don't do that. You have to give your brother and your sister a blanket. You have to give them some food, right? So I'm going to kind of blaze through this real quick. I'm going to give some basic biblical basis for liberation, okay? First thing, God's identification with the poor, he's a good king, right? And we live in a time when we're used to, like, really corrupt leaders. We're used to kings being corrupt. We're used to presidents being corrupt, and they are. They are. But the reason why it hurts us so bad is because deep down inside, we know that it shouldn't be that way, okay? In 2 Corinthians, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, yet for his sake he became poor, that through his poverty he, we might become rich, okay? In Proverbs 7, 19, it says, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed, okay? And I can go on and on and on, but time's short. Second thing, God's command concerning the poor, right? Deuteronomy, if there's a poor man among you, one of your brothers, if any of the towns of the land which the Lord your God's giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand to your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and generously lend from sufficient for his need whatever he lacks, okay? Over and over and over again, you have to care for the poor, okay? Consequences of not serving the poor. This is a good one. In Ezekiel, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. So, you know, again, we spend a lot of time in Christianity in America talking about um, sexual orientation and abortion and all those things. And really, you know, I would submit uh, that's all distraction. Because if you're not talking about race, you're not talking about the reality of it in America, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat. Um, so Dr. James Cohn, he had a work called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And basically, it goes something like this, his thesis. Um, Jesus was lynched. Okay. And the parallels between the cross and a lynching tree are striking. Understand something. Lynching is not about the violence. It's about the intimidation. It's about the intimidation. Okay? Crucifixion was not about the death or the violence per se. Crucifixion was a way to intimidate. So in the first century, you hung someone on a cross to warn everybody else, this is what's going to happen to you. Okay? That's what lynching was about. Lynching was a way to warn black folks, see, when you get uppity, this is what we're going to do to you, okay? So I started off saying that Jesus is black. Jesus is black precisely because he was a Jew. Watch this. 
first century Palestine occupied by a Roman government. This Roman government oppresses economically and physically this small minority group called Jews. You following me? Okay. They have no rights, right? The small little political voice they have is really a puppet show, okay? They have a prophet who comes and he starts saying, guess what? God has come to free you. Guess what they do? They take him, they put him on a tree, and they say, this is what's going to happen to you, okay? This is, I mean, what you, you say instead of the first century, you bring it into the 20th century, the cross and the lynching tree. Brothers and sisters, um, the end of all this is reconciliation. But before you can get reconciliation, you really have to have repentance. I'm going to read this quote. Dr. James Coney says, while divine reconciliation for the oppressed blacks is connected with the joy of liberation from the control and power of white people, for whites, divine reconciliation is connected with God's wrathful destruction of white values. Everything that the white oppressor holds dear is placed under the judgment of the cross. Okay? Academic theologian Gunther Bortmann defines repentance as to hold on to salvation, which is handed to you, and to give up everything for it. We have a good start right now in our day and age where people are waking up and they're saying, you know what, um, something's got to change. But the thing is, it's not going to change um, from just smiling. It's going to cost. It, it costs. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Um, you know, just so we're clear, when we're talking about white values, we're, we're really, we're moving beyond skin color. You have to understand that. Um, because there's, there's plenty of black folk um, who hold those values too. And Dr. James Cohn, he talks about that. You know, there's white folks who hold black values. And what we're talking about is um, truly valuing justice versus just paying a lip service. That's what we're really talking about. We're really talking about taking the gospel serious. Okay? And, it, and I would submit to you, taking the gospel serious um, isn't spiritualizing it, isn't turning it into like a self-help thing. It's literally putting your money where your mouth is. It's um, reaching out and it's sacrificing and it's laying down your life. Uh, the servant is not above the master. So if Christ laid down his life for you to liberate you, uh, you don't really have an option if you're going to be his follower. You need to do the same. And in America, what that means is the oppressed and the poor, who are they now? Who have they been? It's not my job. It's not her job. It's not their job. For you white folks, it's your job. It's your job. Um, it's your job to start with your heart and it's your job to say to your aunt and to your grandma and to the guy at the water cooler, Yo, that ain't right. Right? Because the oppression's still happening. There's still people not getting jobs. East of Truce is still segregated. East of Truce is still uh, not getting funds and money like everywhere else. That's just here. We're not even talking about Chicago. We're not talking about Wisconsin. We're not talking about all kinds of other places. So it's still alive and well. So... Put some boots to the ground, brothers and sisters.
All right. Any questions? Okay, so, all right, so a lot of, and so I'm going to get like slightly political. Um, ah. <laughs> if someone doesn't get political, that's the problem. Okay. They need to get out of here. You need to get political. Here's the deal. Um, I would say to them, do you like to go hunting? Do you like to go camping? Do you enjoy going to stores without putting your hands in your pocket? Do you enjoy driving to anywhere in the 50 United States and really traveling the world without even thinking about it? Sure, you may be embarrassed about your overalls or something, but you can put a suit on. I could put on an Armani suit, roll in the finest jet, right? Guess what happens? Still black, okay? Uh, what was it, like three years ago, Oprah was in like Zurich or something like that, right? And someone's like, I mean, it's Oprah Winfrey for like, <laughs> right? And they still like followed her around. So the thing is, someone can go like, okay, microaggressions, that's not really oppression. Here's the deal. When someone says to me, well, look, like you have athletes, you have Oprah. I go, you know what? Oprah and athletes are such a small percentage of the African-American population. It's, not, it's almost offensive to bring them up. You, you see what I mean? So the thing is, I would say like, yeah, that's, that's terrible. If you're a farmer, if you're in the rural areas, I sympathize with you. And guess what? A big reason that it's happening is because Christianity and churches don't want to talk about politics and economics, right? Because the economic reality of this country, what it's founded upon, is really crushing them. And race has been used to keep them in bondage of that. See, that's another thing they don't want to talk about, right? But I would say to them, yes, you have suffered, but guess what? Everything they've, you've gone through... I've gone through two, but I've also had to go through the part of being black in a world that just doesn't want me, right? So we all suffer. I'm not taking away their suffering at all. I go like, that sucks, yeah, totally sympathize. Um, but there's this other side. And more importantly, you know, I am talking in a Christian context, right? So the thing is, is like, you know, if we believe Jesus is like God and like there's gonna be this like, kingdom moment where everyone's like holding hands like yo how do we get to that i'm gonna tell you something everybody forgive me uh from from my perspective you know like these ideas about like rapture and god sprinkling fairy dust that's new actually that's a new teaching the ancient church doesn't hold that that's why you have to struggle there is no magic dust right if you don't start putting time in now, you're not putting time in later. As Christians, everyone else, I don't know, it's a different thing, but.
-hmm. as Christians. Anybody else? Um, so you were speaking earlier about um, the, the fact that we're called as Christians to be in service to the poor and mm -hmm. to be giving our brothers and sisters blankets and food and all these things. Mm -hmm. But the way that that often plays out in you know in modern society is that we have overwhelmingly white church groups in service to communities of color, and I, I think I've spent a lot of time like struggling with that. You know, mm -hmm. like you used to live at Holy Family House, but how like how can we? Can you speak a little bit to that that dynamic of like you have affluent white people trying to do their Christian duty, but doing it in a way that's like often like reinforcing those racial dynamics? Sure, sure. I think there's there's two things. The first thing is like there's the personal, which is your piety. Okay, so the level of sacrifice in which you engage. Um, a community that's disenfranchised on a personal level, that's a blessing. And that's your personal spiritual and piety, like, right? That's the, uh, the vertical, if you will, right? But the horizontal, again, it's politics and economics, right? Um, white people, meaning like white leaders and churches, they need to stop using poor black communities and poor indigenous communities as vacation to have them feel better. And they need to actually take, because in those white churches are bankers, politicians, people of authority and influence. If you're really serious, then you form committees and you break, you smash those institutions of power. If you're serious. I know it's crazy, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just telling you that that's how it happens. And that, that's what needs to happen. And nothing's gonna change until that happens. Until people who have the power no longer want the power, nothing's going to change. And I understand it's fear. Well, what's going to happen to me? This and this and that. And, well, you just want the power shift for yourself. Look, um, if it was really about just people having power shifts, black people, I mean, you think black people are wild now. Like, <laughs> you know, I, Someone asked me, I was at a, a racial reconciliation conference uh, back east two months ago, and they said, well, do you think black people can forgive us? And I said, black people have already forgiven you. I mean, the reality of it is, is the re <laughs> it doesn't matter how much money I make or he makes or anyone of color makes. When you realize that the power structure that you're immersed in is it's antithetical to your existence, right? You, you see what I'm saying? So the thing is, is like that needs to shift. And I would submit to you, that's a big part of what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom looks like Stuart and Jeremy, you know, shifting and going like, I'm gonna kind of like die to myself right here. And it ain't much, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my way to kind of like influence that structure. That's what that looks like. Yeah, it's political, but, you know. Anyone else? Okay, I'll try this. Who here thinks this is a bunch of malarkey and I am just <laughs> twisting the gospel to some kind of like political-like end? I won't jump down your throat. I actually will have a nice little discourse. I do want to ask a question. Please. Not, it'd be malarkey, but 
please. Um, just to that note of like theology, like so, just think about the demographics of like outside the city and people like in my own family, and mm-hmm. cousins or whatever. So you have a swath of people here in the area where their theology is based on this eternal, like maybe it's not rapture, mm-hmm. me, but it is like, oh no, it's like I got to save people from hell. That's what matters the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, on, on the one hand, like, someone has that idea, like, you really should believe that there's an eternal place, a damnation where you're burned forever. Like, we should be crawling across glass. Right, stuff, right. You know, that's right, right. happening. So, right. on the one hand, you have these people who have that, like, thought. Right. right. Oh, but then they somehow want to parse that out and separate it. So right. I guess, like, I guess I have, like, a couple questions. Like, how do you address, like, those folks? Okay, first, let's stop right there. Let's talk about that. This is why this is important. I'm going to say something crazy. I love white people. I love them. And that's why I'm saying this. Because white people's souls are in danger. And have been. Next question. What? (laughs) Well, yeah, just like trying to address that aspect of like seeing where justice or the body isn't just as important as the soul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then also trying to I guess, like, to my friends who are completely irreligious, or like, what's the need of church and theology in general? Right. Like, save people's bodies? Right. And do this without God in any way? Right. Like, you're, you know, the question you asked earlier that struck a chord with me was, why would a God ignore the cries of the oppressed? And it's like, has God just been a right. cop-out every generation? So, so, so watch this. This is really going to scandalize a lot of you in here. Um. I'm going to submit your friends that are actually putting work in but don't want to go to church. They got a better chance of making it into heaven than most church folk. You know, what's interesting. This idea, forgive me, brothers and sisters. I'm actually trying to do this out of love, not out of like, I'm not just trying to scandalize you for the sake of scandal. But this idea of like, I'm going to say this prayer and I'm just going to go through these kind of basic things and I'm going to live forever in bliss is complete garbage. It's not real. It's not in the Bible. And it's only been taught like that for maybe 150 years. No other Christian anywhere in the world really believed that. There's a very interesting scripture. I didn't get to it because, like, you know, I I had way too many notes. But in that last day, (laughs) did you feed me? Did you give me? clothing? Did you visit me in prison? Did you, it doesn't say, did you go to the altar call? Did you accept me as your Lord and Savior? Like, it literally doesn't say that. The Lord says, what you did on the least of these, you did unto me. I'm going to get real Baptist on you right now and say, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Right? That you can just Give someone some kind of belief in God and it's all good. The scriptures and Jesus really is very clear. You can't do that. Right. There's going to be a a lot of people who you thought were just some kind of screaming atheist and they're going to be there. Father Seraphim Rose, who's um, uh, for some of us, we, we see him as a saint. He would have these conversations and these dialogues, and he would say with atheists, you know, the God that you reject, I reject that God too. So I reject that God. 
I reject that God that would say, like, yeah, you know what, just kind of like save people's souls. Like, what does that even mean? Like, really? What does it even mean? And I think that's one of the things is, yo, it is really hard to do what I'm talking about. It costs you something. When your whole family for generations has believed something and then God reveals to you something different, there's your Damascus Road experience. But brother, is he worth it or not? I'm a Christian. I'll spill my blood for my faith. But I'm going to spill it for something that I know is true and good and just and right. Anyone else? Time. That's the real enemy, brothers and sisters. Time. Thank you.